If you have your Bible or scripture journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 16. Luke and chapter 16. If you don't have a scripture journal, uh, maybe you filled yours up because you took so many awesome notes, um, or you weren't here when we got them and you want one, we have some available for you. They're at the welcome desk. You can get up and grab one now or you can grab one after service um, and take that and use that uh, to the glory of God. Uh, we are in Luke 16. We started chapter 16 as we jumped back from our summer in Psalms last week, and we looked at the parable that's in verses 1 through 13. And so today we're going to look at this bridge section um, in verses 14 through 18. So that's all we'll read together, okay? Luke 16, 14 through 18 will be our focus together this morning. If you got it, say, I got it. Also behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. The Holy Spirit says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Several years ago, I came across an article by this gentleman, Alfie Cohn. He published in the New York Times. And the title of the article is this. When a parent's I love you means do what I say. Okay? And this is how he started. He said, more than 50 years ago, the psychologist Carl Rogers suggested that simply loving our children wasn't enough. We have to love them unconditionally for who they are, not for what they do. As a father, he says, I know this is a tall order, but it becomes even more challenging now that so much of the advice we are given amounts to exactly the opposite. In effect, we're given tips in conditional parenting, which comes in two flavors. Turn up the affection when they're good, withhold affection when they're not. Thus, the talk show host, Phil McGraw, tells us in his book, Family First, that what children need or enjoy should be offered contingently turned into rewards to be dolled out or withheld so they behave according to your wishes. And one of the most powerful currencies of a child, he adds, is the parent's acceptance and approval. Likewise, Joe Frost, you know who she is, super nanny, in her book of the same name, she says the best rewards are attention, praise, and love. And these should be held back when a child behaves badly until she says she is sorry, at which point the love is turned back on. So says Cohn, the author of this article, rather than offering unconditional approval to their children, kids are taught to merit their parents' acceptance through their good behavior and accomplishments and avoidance of bad behavior and failure. Love and acceptance and affection are more available when the children succeeded and less available when they don't. And so he goes on to cite a study that was conducted in 2004 that found that, quote, children who received Conditional approval were indeed somewhat more likely to act as the parent wanted. But compliance came at a steep price. First, these children tended to resent and dislike their parents. 
Second, they were apt to say that the way they acted was often due more to a strong internal pressure than a real sense of choice. Moreover, their happiness after succeeding at something was usually short-lived, and they often felt guilty or ashamed. Further, the data suggests that love withdrawal isn't particularly effective at getting compliance, much less at promoting moral development. Even if we did succeed in making children obey us by using positive reinforcement, is obedience worth the possible long-term psychological harm? Should parental love be used as a tool for controlling children? He suggests, finally, that research shows that unconditional parenting is healthier. Children perform better when they feel as though their parents' love is unconditional, when they have autonomy and freedom to choose, and when they know they will be just as loved when they fail or mess up. More and more researchers are finding that compulsion in every avenue of life, whether in parenting or relationships or workplace, is unhealthy and unhelpful. Now, with all that in mind, what happens when you see God as a father whose love you must earn? It's bad enough, yes, when we believe the love of earthly parents is contingent on our performance, whether as children or when we're even adults. But what about when we think that the way God loves and accepts us is based on our own abilities? I mean, is that, is that how God relates to us? Does God relate to us like a parent whose love is contingent on whether we can be good and keep all the rules? That's how many people conceive of God today, including many professing Christians. But this thought isn't new, is it? In fact, it's ancient, and it's precisely how the Pharisees that Jesus continually has run-ins with conceived of God. And this evidences itself once again in our present text, doesn't it? We see Pharisees, don't we? Don't we modern Christians see Pharisees as villains? But the Pharisees really did mean well. And they really thought that they were doing what they were doing for God. And they really were seen by the citizens of first century Palestine as these paragons of virtue and like the height of religious piety. But they got a lot wrong, the Pharisees did. And not just minor things. They got God wrong. They got the law wrong. They got the Old Testament wrong. And they got Jesus wrong. They were legalists in the strongest sense of the term. They saw themselves as obedient servants of God, but they saw God like one who would look at a parent you obey in order for them to love you. But you knew if you messed up or hung out with the wrong crowd that your parent wouldn't just be disappointed. They wouldn't love you until you fixed yourself. That's how they saw God. Therefore, they didn't really serve God and obey God for God's sake. It wasn't for love of God that they tried to keep all these rules, you understand. They fit perfectly in Gerhardus Voss's definition of legalism when he said legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rules it submits to. This comes to the fore in our short text this morning. And even though this is a short text, there is a lot here. We see the Pharisees misunderstanding the law. They misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand the Old Testament. They under, misunderstand authority and much more. This text, as, I'm, as I noted, also serves as like a bridge between, if you look at your text, the parable of the unjust steward and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, both of which, of course, 
have to do with one's proper use of possession in light of eternity. So let's dive in. We open with this small bridge section with this from Luke. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. So the parable of 1 through 13, which was told to the disciples, was overheard by the Pharisees, who were apparently like eavesdropping. All right, they must be from the south. And what did they think of Jesus' parable? All the southerners like, as a northerner, I could say that. And what did they think of Jesus' parable and lessons that followed? They hated it. They hated them. And so they sneered, is what the text says, at Jesus. You, know, you look at your ESV, if you're in the ESV, it says ridiculed. But literally, it's sneered. It, it, it carries with it the sense of turning one's nose up at someone. This, this word was, was one that was used frequently in wisdom literature of the time to describe the response of a fool to someone who was wise or the reaction of a godless person to the righteous. And why did they reject Jesus' teaching on this topic in particular? Well, Jesus said, he just said, if you just look up at the end of that parable, you cannot serve God and mammon. And what does Luke tell us? He, he tells us exactly why they hate this. The Pharisees happen to love mammon and think they're doing a pretty good job of balancing love of God with love of money. But Jesus just said, that's impossible. But they rejected this notion because what would that mean? It would mean if what Jesus said was true, that the Pharisees hate God, right, and love money. It's like, have you ever, have you ever had some food on your face that you didn't know about? or some clothes out of place, or like a stain you didn't notice, and someone told you about that? Have you ever had that experience? Of course you have. You get to a mirror, and you see it, and you may be thankful, but you're probably, what, a little embarrassed. How long have I been walking around like this? Right? Jesus, like, holds up a mirror to the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees are seeing is simply their own reflection. Right? He's showing them their own hearts, and they feel convicted but instead of repenting and changing their loyalties, what do they do? They get mad at the one who's holding up the mirror. And isn't that how we can all be sometimes? When someone shows us our sin, we get mad at the one pointing it out rather than ourselves. All of our defense mechanisms go up, and instead of looking internally at our own heart, we find ways to change the subject, or we cast blame. You, you have to understand that, we say. We make excuses for our disobedience and rebellion, or otherwise we'll just lash out at the messenger. Oh, you think you're so perfect? The Pharisees don't like what they see in the mirror that Jesus is holding up. But instead of adjusting themselves, they're mad at the mirror. You see, in, in Jesus' mirror holding, we get a little wordplay, okay? Jesus said, Remember in verse 9, if you look up at verse 9, he said we should make friends that will get us into eternal dwellings. We noted that these friendships would be with the least and the last who can't repay, and that to do so would be like if you did it for God himself. And these deeds will yield heavenly rewards, as we said last week. But the Pharisees aren't using their worldly wealth to make friends that will yield eternal rewards. Rather, they're instead friends with money. That, that's the wordplay that's going on here. What this all comes down to, okay, if you take notes, this whole discourse in verses 14 through 18 
Then Jesus' clash with the Pharisees comes down to this. Okay, one word. Authority. That's what it all comes down to. Authority. Every word in verses 14 through 18 comes down to this. Who are you serving? Who is your king? What is your motivation for doing the things that you do? Why do the Pharisees sneer at Jesus? Why do they turn their nose up at him? Why are they so bothered at everything that Jesus says and does? Why do they get all in a tizzy when Jesus merely has lunch with the riffraff? Or heals the sick? Or or gives sight to the blind? Or causes the lame to walk? Or touches a leper? Why do they get so mad about that? Why why do they get mad at Jesus' teaching and commands? It's simple, isn't it? They reject Jesus' authority. That's what it all comes down to. Jesus has come as one who claims to be speaking for God to man with all the authority of God himself. When Jesus speaks, when Jesus speaks, his words carry the weight of the divine. The problem for the Pharisees is that what Jesus is saying goes against what they teach and believe. These religious leaders whom the people are, are looked to as so moral examples of what it would look like to follow God are being openly contradicted by this Jesus. They reject what Jesus is saying because they neither believe he is God's Christ nor want to come under his authority. So what do they do? They sneer. Who, who is this Jesus to tell us that we can't serve both God and money? I think I'm doing pretty well, they say, for myself, serving both. Thank you very much. The Pharisees are like school children who tell one another on the playground, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. That's what, they're, that's what it's reduced to. That's what they're saying to God's Messiah. That they want to live how they want to live, and they don't want Jesus to tell them any different or challenge what they're doing. Do we do that too? I wonder. See, what the Pharisees fail to realize, and what we often fail to realize, is that the fundamental root of every sin is the rejection of divine authority. Jesus speaks as one who has divine authority. And when they say, I'm not going to obey you, they're saying, I'm not going to obey God. This has been the fundamental sin, this rejection of God's kingship and authority since the very first one in Eden. You remember? You heard the story a billion times. God told our first parents to refrain from eating from how many trees? Just the one. And the serpent comes. They're just hanging out by the tree for who knows why. The serpent comes, and he says, did God really say you couldn't eat from the tree? And he said, you know, God said you would surely die, but you won't surely die. He said, listen, the real reason that God doesn't want you to eat it is because he doesn't want you to be like him. So what did Adam and Eve do? They bought the lie. They ate the fruit. They plunged the world into darkness. They believed God did not have their best interest in mind, and they wanted to be gods. And so they took and ate, plunged the world into darkness. But what was the root of that first sin? Casting off God's authority in favor of their own. Am I right? 
That's undeniable. It was rejecting God's lordship and kingship over them. It's wanting to be king instead of submitting to the true one. It's a pride that says, I know better. If you read your Old Testament, you'll see over and over again, the people of God have trouble and they're sent into exile by God. Why? Because they cast off God's authority. Human history is just a long, terrible story of people trying to be their own kings or trying to find alternatives to God to rule over them. All of it is sneering at God and at his Christ. People no less now than then continue to sneer at Jesus, don't they? Even people who think they're very religious or even think they're Christians continue to sneer at the Lord by rejecting his authority over their lives. Is that not a sneering at Jesus? Some would claim to know Christ and yet reject his commands, reject his rule over them functionally, even if they don't say so verbally. Some have no place for obedience and don't pursue what Jesus said to pursue in light of his grace and mercy. They have not come under his lordship, even if they claim his claim him as savior. Friends, that is sneering at Jesus. Just the same. See, if you were to ask the average person what the gospel was, it, this is how they would answer. They would say, Jesus died for my sins. And that's not the gospel. That, that's part of the gospel. This is true. That's not the whole gospel, is it? Any gospel that would leave out the truth that Jesus is God's anointed king who has come to take his rightful place on the throne, and therefore proper relation to him is to give him true allegiance, and more and more bring ourselves under his rule as we pursue what it means to be truly Christians, any, of that, any gospel that leaves that out is at best half a gospel. To know Jesus is to know him as both Savior and Lord. And lordship means he is our authority and all others must be renounced in favor of his rule, including ourselves. We look at the Pharisees, don't we? And we think, how can they sneer at Jesus? Who do they think they are? How can they turn their nose up at the Lord? But if we aren't submitting to Jesus' authority in our lives and pursuing obedience to his commands, we are sneering just as they did. It may be more subtle, but it's sneering just the same. If we reduce the gospel down to pray a prayer so that you could go to heaven when you die and then live as you like, then we're no better than the Pharisees were in their scoffing rejection of Jesus. Why? Because it's fundamentally a rejection of Jesus' authority and a refusal to submit to his rule. In his book, Unsaved Christian, Dean and Sarah tells of an illustration that he heard when he was a kid that stuck with him where the speaker had the audience measure, literally measure the distance between their heads and their hearts. The left side of their heads to the middle side of their chest, of course, the left side of the chest. For most people, it's about 18 inches. And as the speaker wrapped up, he said, some of you are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. His point is simply that mere mental assent to the gospel isn't enough to save. It has to take root in your heart. 
And once it takes root in your heart, you will be transformed with renewed affections to see your need for Christ, to be conformed by Christ. And one of the primary means that this happens is through his word, and this leads to functional obedience and life change, to bring oneself under the authority of King Jesus. And Sarah says this, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. In his own words, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Many people want the good luck charm Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. See, this really is a heart issue. Is it for Jesus? Not just authority, but the state of one's heart. What are the Pharisees doing apart from rejecting Jesus' authority? See, they weren't lawless like many people are today who refuse to submit to Jesus' authority and commands. They're very religious, aren't they? They're very religious. They try to keep all the rules, but not from a heart bent towards God. See, it was not love for God that was their motivation. It was being seen by men. What does verse 15 say? You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God what? knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, the Pharisees' religion was a performative one. They cared more about appearing holy than they did actually being holy. That's a big difference, isn't it? As long as people saw them and were impressed by their piety, the state of their heart didn't matter. So whereas people today may reject Jesus' authority by being disobedient to him, the Pharisees rejected Jesus' authority because they didn't think they needed him since they thought they were obeying and keeping all the rules. See, they thought they were good enough on their own. They followed the rules. What use did they have of Jesus? It's like the younger and older sons in the parable that we call prodigal son. Some reject Jesus through disobedience. Some reject him through obedience. That is self-justifying, and thus is obedience done from a heart detached from love of God. As I was thinking about this text this week, <clears throat> I kept thinking about this character from Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. Have any of you guys read Flannery O'Connor's? Okay. <laughs> She's from Georgia. His name is Hazel Motts, okay, this character. If you read this novel, you meet him, right after he's discharged from World War II. And Motts grew up in this real... O'Connor writes a lot about the South, okay? That's where all her stories take place. And so Motts grew up in this little town in Tennessee, and his family was immersed in the Bible, but they were afraid of God. The Motts family saw God as like a stern judge who kept meticulous records of each human's mistake and misdemeanors they believed would punish... The, He'd punish them all severely on that last day, so they tried to keep the rules as best they could, right? God was this, for them, they didn't love God. God was a harsh taskmaster. They were afraid of him. So they kept all the rules. Hazel Motz grows up, okay, and he rejects this, but, but he doesn't embrace Jesus. He believes he could be good enough on his own. Now, this is the line that I kept thinking about all week, okay? O'Connor writes this about him. She says, there was already a deep black wordless conviction in him 
that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see what she's saying there? The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Mots thought he could be good enough by himself. If he could avoid sin, if he could be righteous, if he could keep all the rules that make for a moral society, well, what use does he have for Jesus? Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus because they're pretty good at keeping the rules. Better yet, everyone saw them do it. They avoided sin and were self-justifiers. You know, many people today, religious or not, have this same posture towards Jesus. Many people believe themselves to be pretty good and are doing a decent job of being moral. So what use have they for Jesus? Many people are sitting in churches today whose religion is little more than religious performance. They do their religious duty. They do all the things that make for a good Christian. They take their bodies to church, and they leave their hearts at home. They go through the motions of the church's liturgy, but they don't mean the words they sing, or maybe they refrain from singing altogether. After all, isn't it enough that my body is here? They sit passively, they hear someone preach, but they've already determined what the text says. They aren't so bad, so what use have they of a king who makes radical demands on their lives? Isn't that for the people who are really bad out there? No room for conviction of sin, no thought that they need continual reform from the inside out. Give me that old-time religion and that sameness and comfort, and I'll be just fine. Just don't give me a Jesus who demands to be the controlling center of my life that might make me uncomfortable or cause me to change. Irony of ironies is the same posture as those who believe themselves to be Christian but never go to church. Is it not? They think they're doing just fine by themselves. What do they need the church for? If I prayed a prayer and I walked an aisle and believe in God and I believe in Jesus, then what else is there? I could live a moral life without all of that. Like Mott's, they think the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Tim Keller said, if you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, and ironically, you may be looking to Jesus' teacher, model, and helper, but you're avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You're trying to save yourself by following Jesus. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. What does God, what does God think of all that religion that is posturing? What does he think? What does he think of the religion of people whose performance is external and self-justifying. It tells us, doesn't it? He thinks it stinks. He thinks it stinks. Look again at verse 15. Jesus says that God knows their heart and that this exalting and self-justifying is an abomination in his sight. Literally, this word translated abomination means detestable, and it carries with it the idea of something stinking. It offends the nostrils. It's a stench to God. Do you guys see? Here's another word play, right? The Pharisees turn their nose up at Jesus, but God wrinkles his nose at their heartless deeds. Do you see? The Pharisees turn their nose up at God and Jesus, and God turns his no nose up to them. 
James Edwards says, The importance of this contrast is hard to overstate. What is natural to humanity, even noble, may stink in God's nostrils. Self-exaltation. Does it please God? The pursuit of self-justification is a denial of the gospel, of the gracious king who brings only those into the kingdom who admit their helplessness and their inability. The idea that we could somehow be good enough misses the basic fact of our sinless state and rebellion. It misses one of the main reasons that God came into the world as a crying baby in a feeding trough. It rejects the cross and Jesus' atoning death upon it. If you could justify yourself, you have no need of Jesus. If you could be moral and ethical and even religious without Jesus, what need of him do you have? If you reduce what it means to be Christian to mere deeds, you, you could be good, you could be respectable, you can. You could be very religious and you could still be as lost as the demons. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I don't know if this is a name familiar to you. He was a pastor in Philadelphia. He asked this question, what would a major city look like if Satan had complete control over it? That's what he said. He said, let's say that Satan took over the city he was pastoring in, Philadelphia. Okay. He asked, what would that look like? This is what he said. All the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. See, Satan doesn't mind a bloodless religion of tidy folks putting on a self-justifying show. Satan doesn't mind that at all. He's a mind, a Christless religion that is little more than external conformity or nominal cultural Christianity that locates justification anywhere but in the wrath-absorbing Christ. And why should he? That doesn't change anyone, does it? That doesn't push back any darkness. That changes no lives in an eternal sense. My friend, there is a world of difference between a self-justifying, performative religion that seeks to impress men through rote ritual and morality that performs deeds abstracted from the heart of Christ, and a life lived under the kingship of Jesus done out of love for Jesus that has been activated by sensing in the heart that Jesus loves us in spite of the way we are. One of those stinks in the nostrils of God, the other is pleasing to him. Can there be a bigger difference? Michael Reeves says in his book, Evangelical Pharisees, which I encourage you to read, what the Pharisees show us is that Pharisaism is not just the crankiness that comes from with a hardening of spiritual arteries. First and foremost, it is a theological issue. The Pharisees were as they were and acted as they did because they denied the gospel. Their mercilessness, love of applause, and trust in themselves all flowed from a refusal to listen to Scripture a refusal to receive a righteousness not their own, and a refusal to see their need for a new heart. Their character was a manifestation of their theology. And how was their theology? How was it? It was bad. Jesus tells them in verses 16 through 18 that even the way they read their Bible is wrong. Says Jesus, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God 
is preached. What does that mean? Does that mean that the law and prophets, which is shorthanded for Old Testament, is now invalid and unnecessary? Is that what Jesus means? Of course not. For verse 17, the law and prophets are more durable than the physical universe. Not one little stroke of the pen, he says, will pass away from the law and prophets. The universe would sooner depart than that would happen. You know, some even today teach and preach and write that the Old Testament is all but useless for the Christian. That it is, has nothing of worth for the New Testament person. Some go so far as to say that nothing before the cross is for the Christian. In fact, they say, we need no laws, we need no commands whatsoever. Those people are false teachers. And those who say such things are doing so, as Alistair Begg would say, from an empty head and a closed Bible. Jesus is telling us not that the Old Testament is no longer needed, necessary, or valid. In fact, He's doing the opposite. He's heightening its importance by telling us, listen, that it's all about him. All of it has been pointing to him. All of it has been anticipating him. All of it has been waiting on him to come and fulfill all righteousness. To rid ourselves of the Old Testament would be to rid ourselves of a book that's all about Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. It would be like deciding to jump in into a three-hour-long movie at the two-hour and 40-minute mark. It would be like reading nothing of Tolkien but skipping the first two books of The Lord of the Rings and then just picking up Return of the King. It would be like seeing that there are seven Harry Potter books and deciding to start with seven and then jump into the middle of that. You get get my meaning, don't you? If Jesus is the center of of our faith, why on earth would we rid ourselves of that which tells us of him? He's on every page of your Old Testament, my friend. And in fact, he's the key to even understanding it. So when, we, when he says that, it was until John, but now the kingdom of, is preached, he's saying that the message of the kingdom was once a distant promise, awaiting fulfillment, but now that he's here, it could be preached in terms of nearness and arrival. If John the Baptist was a bridge between these two eras. He had one foot in each, as it were. And John preached that the time of fulfillment had arrived in the person of Jesus. See, unlike the Pharisees, John knew how to read his Bible. He was looking at it from the right angle. He knew that it all pointed in one direction and to one divine person. C.S. Lewis wrote, this essay you can find online is called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And he illustrated the idea of having the right perspective. He said, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture had vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed an irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of trees outside. And beyond that, 99 odd million miles away, the sun looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. See, he was saying that what we see depends on when we're standing. 
And so it is with the Bible. The Pharisees look at the Old Testament and simply see a way of obtaining favor with God and men. And too often, what they care about is man's opinion more than God's, but they've missed Jesus. Jesus is saying that Scripture is meant not merely for looking at, but for looking along and through at himself. Scripture do not have life in themselves just as they do not point to themselves. The law and prophets point to Jesus. They're a beam of light shining on the glorious Christ. We aren't to stare at the beam, nor even only at the source, but to what is being illumined, namely Jesus. But see, those who would reject the Old Testament in our day as outdated or irrelevant, irrelevant do so not, from, not only from bad theology, but because they are influenced by the Pharisees' approach to the law more than they are Jesus's. What do I mean by that? You know, many view the law as if it were given in order to save. In other words, the way to be saved in the Old Testament was by keeping the rules, but now we're under grace and we don't need to bother with those silly laws. The Pharisees clearly think that their obedience is the way to be saved. They don't obey out of love for God, as we mentioned. They obey because they want something from Him. They even took it a step further by adding laws to the law and then trying to obey those and make sure everyone saw them do it. But listen, the law itself never claims to be salvific. This is an invention. It was never been true that salvation in the Old Testament was through obedience and salvation in the New is by grace. Listen, from Genesis 1, it's always been grace. Always. Even the context in which God gave the law was in light of his rescue of a people out of Egypt, and those people did not one single blessed thing to merit that rescue. But Jesus tells the Pharisees here that the law and prophets are forever. For they speak of him. They anticipate his arrival and his fulfillment of everything therein. What did, let's ask this, what did Jesus think of the law? Sinclair Ferguson explains it well. He says, Jesus loved and obeyed God's law. He was no legalist. In fact, he was accused of being the very reverse. But because he loved his father, his father's expressed will was important to him. Nor did Jesus find obeying the law an irritating restriction, a dampener on his spiritual joy. Indeed, every Christian acknowledges that if you want to see what life is really meant to be, you look at Jesus. But there is only one Jesus, Jesus the lawkeeper. So what is the law and prophets meant to do besides pointing us to Christ? Can we see Christ in them but reject all of their statutes? Can we throw out, for example, the Ten Commandments? What do you think? No, Jesus isn't saying that at all, is he? In fact, he constantly tells us what the law actually means. He goes past physical act that is being forbidden straight to the heart. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you thought you were fine if you just didn't physically kill someone? Well, if you hate them, you murdered them in your heart. Jesus, again, he's striking the heart. It isn't physical performance, it's a heart issue. This is why he mentions divorce and remarriage here. You know, understand, this is not meant to give us, this text, verse 18, a complete theology of divorce and remarriage. Okay? Jesus isn't telling us here all of his thoughts on the matter, but he's using, this is what it's for, an example everyone would know in order to make a point about his authority and the law's function. The law, as we said, is not intended to save us, but neither is it relaxed 
now that Jesus has arrived. So what he says about marriage here is simply an example of the law's enduring validity. But since the law it wasn't intended to save, what was it intended to do? If salvation then as now is by grace through faith, how can we make use of the law? This is what we must remember, that they are not way to life, they are a way of life. In other words, they aren't the way to salvation, they're the way we ought to live in light of accomplished redemption, which was won for us by the work of a gracious God through Christ's life, death, resurrection, and enthronement. The illustration I love about this was given by G.K. Chesterton. He said, picture a plateau, okay, or an island high above the sea, and there's a wall around the cliff's edge. And on this flat plain, on top of this cliff, there are children who are playing ruckus games, right? And they're running, they're laughing, they're throwing themselves against the wall. They're just having the best time going crazy on this plateau. And Chesterton said that those who want to do away with God's commandments are like people who want to tear the wall down off that cliff, thinking that this will make the children free. But what will happen if you take down that fence? Instead of the kids playing raucous games and laughing and enjoying themselves, they will be huddled together in the center of the plateau because they're afraid of blowing over the edge. The walls were there in order to provide a safe space in which the people of God, then as now, can live and there's freedom in that. The absence of walls isn't freedom. No walls will cause us to go to fear or go over the edge. The commands of Scripture are walls not to restrict, but for the people to enjoy life as it was meant to be rather than falling into harmful, destructive sins. Do you see? The commands of the Bible, in light of Christ, help us to live as God intended us to live before the fall of man. They aren't restricting, they're freeing. They help us to live with joy without flying over the edge of the cliff. This is what Jesus has come to do. He does what the law on its own can never do, which is cause us to live as different people. Because of Jesus, we really can submit to him and pursue obedience. Will we fail? Will we fail? Every day. But he enables us to get back up and live as he created us to live. This is why, don't you see, when I said that the gospel cannot simply be reduced to Jesus died for me. That's an incomplete gospel. Jesus died for our sins so that we can more and more kill the sin that remains in us, and live as loyal subjects to the true king as he makes all things new. His commands help us do that, don't you see? With this example of marriage in verse 18, Jesus shows us that Pharisees, that shows the Pharisees that he takes the law even more seriously than they do. See, the Pharisees and the scribes and other religious leaders, they relax God's commandments on divorce by giving men every conceivable way of out of marriage that you could think of. Men could divorce their wives if they burned their supper. Or if, that's not a joke, that's for real. Or if they just fancied another woman, which sounds like our culture, actually, doesn't it? But it left the woman completely at the mercy of men. What does Jesus do? Do you see what he does? You see how he words this? He tells men that if they divorce their wives and get remarried, they've committed adultery. And if they marry a woman who is divorced, they commit adultery. Now again, the point of this passage, I need you to know this, is not to talk about the possible grounds for divorce. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, what about this reason? What about that reason? Then you're missing the point of this passage. 
Of course, the Bible gives two permissible reasons for divorce, abandonment and immorality. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't hate divorce. Jesus, see, just because our culture views marriage as just another contract in our lives based on reciprocity in which one is free to sever ties at any time for any reason does not mean that God's view of marriage as a lifelong covenant vow has changed. You know, it's funny, Russell Moore, he writes a newsletter every week. Just this past week, his newsletter, he said, very early in my ministry, I was taken aback by a man who could recite all the relevant biblical passages about dangers of adultery and the importance of marital fidelity, but who sat in my office with his wife and new baby, waving all of that aside as he told me he was leaving his marriage for someone else. I've fallen in love, he said, with a shrug that seemed to imply what is there left to say. The Pharisee has this kind of low view of marriage. A man, and we can use that term loosely, can't we? Such as in Moore's example, would be just fine to the Pharisees. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Marriage is grounded in creation, and God's view of it has not changed. Keep your vows. But Jesus gives us a point from everyday life to not only say that he is the correct interpreter of the law that never fails, but that his ethics should permeate every area of life. To submit to Jesus and come into his kingdom means that he influences every part of your being. Do you realize that? See, in Jesus' paradigm, there's no parting out your life and telling Jesus, here, you can have this part, and I like to just retain this part and this part and this part, and I'll let you know when I need you, thank you. See, he demands it all. Every part of your life, he calls to have authority over. We say, I want to retain some authority, but we aren't capable. Nor is there such an option with this king. But God is not a father, do you understand, who, like in the intro, loves based on performance. He doesn't look at you and say, shape up and I'll love you. He doesn't say, obey and I'll love you. He doesn't say, obey or else. See, in all this talk of authority and obedience, We are still saved only through the death of the king. All we need is need. All we need is nothing to be rescued from the sins that the law shows us that we have piled up so high that it can reach heaven itself. And after we're saved, Jesus doesn't say, obey and I'll keep loving you, or obey and you can stay in the kingdom. No, our obedience neither gets us in nor out of the kingdom. He loves us with a love that holds onto us. It is Jesus who has his grip on us. If it were our grip on him that mattered most, we'd all be doomed. But he holds on to us and he loves us. And because he loves us, he says, obey and live as you ought for your good and my glory. Why did Jesus save us? Because he loves us. Why should we perform? Why should we pursue obedience and submit to his authority? Because we love him. Because he loves us and he has enabled us to both love him and obey him from proper motives. And he's inviting you in, isn't he? You see where our translation says in verse 16 regarding the kingdom, everyone forces his way into it? A better way to say this is all are urged insistently to come in. So Jesus is just, is still the banquet host saying, Come in through the narrow way, but hurry, the door is closing. Jesus is king whether we acknowledge him 
as such or not. And the kingdom is coming whether we're in it or not. But he is inviting us in, but the time is short. Isn't it striking that even the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies, are being invited insistently by Jesus to cease their foolish, self-ruling ways and come into the kingdom of God. The time is short. The door could close at any moment. Would you delay? See, some of you are delaying answering Jesus' call. Some of you have never submitted to Jesus. Some of you have perhaps prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, even got baptized, but you've never submitted to Jesus as king and given him your allegiance. Some of you have never, have, have never, have never postured as if you knew Jesus. You don't never had the posture as if you knew Jesus. You, you know you have never submitted to him. You're not pretending, but you also may have been thinking that you have made a fitting king for yourself. But now you finally see that you need a better king. Some of you are relying on your record or your goodness. Some of you are posturing with religious performance. But in your heart, you're far from God. Some of you really have given your allegiance to Jesus, but not functionally. You love Jesus, you do your religious duty, but you're still holding back from following Jesus the way you know you've been called to. You're playing it safe try to hold on to parts of your life because you don't want Jesus to take over completely. No matter who you are, Jesus is, in this moment, insisting urgently that you come to him. He bids you come and die to yourself, to your deeds, to your performance, to your safe religion, and in that dying, you will find life. Go to him while it's still called today, and you will find open arms and open door. Do not delay Go to the King of glory and find in him everything you'll ever need and more.